Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm really excited to have with me today Dr. David Mazur, who gave Grand Rounds here at Hopkins this morning. It was a fantastic presentation. Many of you probably know Dr. Mazur's name. He's a professor at the University of Toronto and is incredibly well-published in many areas, most specifically and recently, uh, the PI on the TRIX-3 trial, which was a transfusion trigger in cardiac surgery trial published in the New England Journal. Really interesting and gave a great talk about transfusion triggers and about kind of lessons he's learned uh, in his career and life so far that was really well-received. And so we decided that uh, we, if we were lucky, and we are lucky enough to have him sit down to do a little extra talking on the topic. So, uh, Dr. Mazur, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. Great to be here. So why don't we start off a little bit um, just talking about you. You've uh, had a very successful and continue to have a very successful ongoing career um, in many ways, but especially in research. Um, and I tell our listeners a little bit about how you got where you are and any recommendation or advice you have for people who may be in med school or in training and thinking, you know, I would love one day to be uh, able to publish a New England Journal article. Sure. Um, uh, so I had uh, grown up in Saskatchewan in the prairies of Canada. And uh, when I finished medical school, I didn't actually know what I had wanted to do. So if you'd asked me at that point where I'd end up in my career, I would never have predicted uh, this to be the, uh, the place that I'd end up. So a lot of my career ended up being serendipitous. Um, I uh, did uh, an internship and uh, found that uh, the anesthesiologists were the people that uh, seemed to have the most interesting practice and the most interesting life and could talk about things outside of medicine. So I thought uh, that would be something I'd like to pursue. Uh, But before I did that, I did some general practice in places north of the Arctic Circle. I was a doctor in Taktayaktak. I did locums in uh, New Zealand, Mm. and I practiced in Saskatchewan doing uh, general practice and then decided to pursue a career in anesthesia. Uh, so I did my anesthesia residency in Toronto and uh, um, came across a mentor who's been a mentor of mine my entire life, and uh, he encouraged me to do research training, which I did um, at the University of California in San Francisco. And then I came back uh, um, up to that point, or prior to anesthesia research, I had uh, Uh, or sorry, prior to me embarking on my anesthesia training and um, the fellowship, I had not done any research. In fact, if you look at my CV, uh, I don't have a PhD. uh, I don't have a Master's of Public Health. I don't have a Master's of Science. In fact, I don't even have a Bachelor of Science degree. All I have is an MD degree. But what I've had in my career is a lot of curiosity, um, some great mentorship, Um, some opportunity, and uh, some luck thrown in as well. And of those, I think the two most important are probably curiosity and mentorship. Yeah, uh, that's great. And I I was struck by that when you said this morning that you had no formal research training prior to residency. And I think that that actually could be really... um, intriguing for people out there who may think, oh, you know, I'm not an MD-PhD, so that that is not open to me. And I asked you this when we were just chatting before we went on the air, but I'll ask you again now because I think folks might want to hear it. You know, if you if you were talking to, uh, you know, med students uh, and they had the option of, let's say, working a year of research training in, do you recommend that? Uh, do you think it's helpful to have that training if people have the option? I think it is helpful to have training related to research or the research that you might be interested in doing. Um, I 
gained my knowledge about research along the way. I learned as I went, um, or I engaged others who had that expertise to help me al along the way. But if one does uh, know that they want to pursue a research career, for sure having some training related to research, whether it's a, um, a clinical epidemiology degree, an MD-PhD, or something like that, uh, gives you an edge and also uh, allows you to progress a little bit further. But um, as I said, uh, I had no training whatsoever um, related to research, and I was fortunate to uh, have the opportunity and the mentorship to help me get where I am. Yeah, and I think that's the message is, you know, if folks are interested, um, they st it's still possible. You just have to find the right mentors and have the curiosity and, um, and learn from people as you go. Um, so let's uh, talk just a little about the idea that the TRIX3 trial was a huge international trial um, and seems very daunting, I think, to people, even who are doing some research, to think about doing something like that. So what advice do you have uh, for people who might think, you know, I'd be interested in one day running a, an international trial? What, what kind of skills would they want to develop or thought processes they want to have to be able to get to that point? So I think one needs to... Um Start by looking at questions that are really important to you, uh, but also really important to patients and really important to funding agencies. Because to do a large trial uh, requires a lot of work by a lot of people. So those people need to share the vision that you have or the importance of the question that you want to address. In addition, it does require significant resources, and for granting agencies or your universities or your um, practice partners to support that along the way, they need to understand the importance of the question and really want to know the answer. Um, and I think while it is important to think big, um, I started small. And I started with small questions and I started with um, uh, addr addressing questions that I could uh, could answer in a smaller fashion or a simplistic way. And um, also, I think collaborating with others is important. Uh, in fact, TRIX3 started because the hematologist who I'm a co-PI with came to me after she finished her training and said she wanted to do a master's degree and could we do something related to transfusion. Hmm. And so I said, sure, we could do this master's degree together. We did a survey of transfusion, and after that was completed, we decided that maybe we should look at um, something more interventional related to transfusion practice. So we did TRIX-1, which was a small study at our own hospital. Again, Nadine was instrumental in uh, uh, leading TRIX-1 and encouraging me along the way. Um, and from there, we went on to TRIX-2 and TRIX-3, engaged other partners, uh, were fortunate enough to get funded from major funding agencies, uh, and had the commitment and engagement of a wide variety of people around the world who really wanted to know the answer to the question. And fortunately, we were successful in being able to answer it. Yeah, that's fantastic. If you had to say, uh, what would you say is the most challenging part of running that kind of a trial? There are many challenges along the way that uh, become most challenging at different times uh, of the life of the trial. Uh, um, the most challenging part um, pr 
probably relates to um, getting the engagement of everyone who's going to support the trial. Uh, and again, that's the patients, the funders, the institutions, the ethics boards, uh, and all your partners. Because uh, for a trial like this to succeed, there needs to be uh, continued commitment to answering the question. And whether that's personal commitment or financial commitment or time commitment, um, it is essential for success. Yeah, and you mentioned this morning this was a 10-year process of, of your life from planning to publication. Is well, that right? from the time that Nadine first came to me and said, let's do a transfusion project together yeah. until Trix 3 is probably about 10 years. Yeah, so you have to have patience and uh, fortitude to yes. make it through that kind of a process. Yes, it's a, long, it's a long-term thing. And that is, I think, one of the, the issues – uh, related to research is that in some respects, research related to anesthesia is very different than clinical practice in anesthesia. So in clinical practice in anesthesia, we are taught to be risk averse. Um, but in research, you actually have to take risks and you have to explore new areas or do things in a way that people haven't done before. And then you mentioned the time horizon within clinical practice in anesthesia. The time horizons are very short you know, cases or days, but right. the time horizon for research is uh, longer, measured in months or years. Um, and then finally, the, um, uh, the other difference between clinical practice and research is in research along the way, you frequently have to, again, um, explain to the partners in the research endeavor what it is you're trying to do why you're going to do it, and then after you've done it, have it reviewed as well. So uh, the research process is very different than the, the clinical practice of anesthesia, um, and I think uh, understanding that will help people uh, be successful. It will also help our clinical colleagues who are essential to support the research endeavor understand the challenges of doing research. Yeah, great. So let's talk about transfusion triggers. What I was taught and what we, I think, mainly teach our trainees here, uh, and I think in many places, is uh, that most people should be transfused at a hemoglobin of 7, and that if they have coronary artery disease, uh, they should be transfused at a hemoglobin of 8. Um, is that where, – where do those numbers come from? And, uh, you know, and then I'll just say that for the TRIX-3 trial, you used slightly different triggers, 7.5 and, and 9.5, which then when they got to the ward went down uh, to 8.5. So how did we start at 7 and 8, or why, does, why is that taught? And then how did you end up at slightly different triggers for your trial? Um, good question. Uh, and there are many, uh, many factors that go into deciding what a transfusion trigger should be. And again, the, the trial was a comparison of strategies of transfusion more than it was a comparison of actual triggers. Um, so the strategies were... Should you be liberal with transfusion or should you be restrictive mm -hmm. with transfusion? Um, and so they're philosophies rather than prescriptions. Yep. Um, but, but within that, uh, if one wants to show a difference between two strategies, then there needs to be separation of the groups because if one did a trial of eight versus nine, then there wouldn't be much separation between the two groups, and you wouldn't likely show a difference, not because there isn't a difference between the two, just because the, uh, the ability to show a difference between two groups is 
reduced. So there needs to be separation of the groups, and most people think that that separation in the trigger should be in the 2 to 3 range because the average hemoglobins of the patients in the groups is actually above the triggers. And so there's even lower separation between the two groups in their actual hemoglobin concentrations during the trial. Um, And then the other thing that I'll say is most of the the trials that are trigger-based look at a specific transfusion trigger, but some of the commentary about TRIX-3 has been that we should not just solely base transfusions on a number because there are lots of factors that may go into whether a patient is... um, uh, is better off to be transfused or not transfused. And then the final thing that I'll say is, although TRIX-3 was a trial of strategies, restrictive versus liberal transfusion, it should not be misinterpreted as a trial advocating for anemia and non-anemia because the question we were specifically answering was, if a patient becomes anemic to a level of in this case, 7.5 grams per deciliter, are they better off to be transfused or not transfused? That's not advocating for anemia. In fact, my own belief is that patients are better off to have their own red blood cells in their own system, and what we should do is do everything that we can to preserve the patient's red cells and, in fact, increase their red cell mass so they don't become anemic. So the trials should not be interpreted as advocating for anemia, but rather when one becomes anemic, are you better off to be transfused or not transfused, or are you harmed by one of the other strategies? Now, having said that, the reason that we settled on the trigger that we did was uh, because it ended up being a compromise between uh, many different factions. And some people who uh, interpreted the original trick trial uh, said that their and based on their own practice said that the transfusion trigger in tricks three should be lower seven six point five even lower than that. On the other hand, there were people who were concerned by the Titer II trial and said, no, it should actually be higher. And in fact, the granting agency who supported the trial, CIHR. Uh, when they first reviewed the trial, said they wouldn't fund us until we could adequately justify that a trigger lower than eight was not making it unsafe for patients. So in essence, the trigger of 7.5 was a compromise between the ranges of what people interpreted appropriate for restrictive transfusion. Now, whether or not we would get the same results if we had designed the trial with a trigger of 7 or 6.5, we don't know. Many people have said that should be the next trial, but it likely won't be. Um, But in my own view, uh, there is a threshold beyond which the risk of anemia is greater than the risk of transfusion in this group of moderate to high-risk patients uh, undergoing cardiac surgery. 7.5 for a transfusion trigger did not uh, confer on them a worse outcome than a liberal trigger. Right. And so it could be that seven would be fine, but we, did, we didn't answer that question. We don't question. know. Yeah, we don't know. And uh, the kind of seven for uh, – we and also this trial didn't address, you know, medical patients with a GI bleed, right? I mean, Correct. As far as we know, those patients probably should still have a seven as a threshold. Although many of the randomized trials in GI, yes, the restrictive transfusion down to seven or 7.5 does seem to be – 
uh, it does seem to result in a similar out- or better outcome than the liberal transfusion. Right. And the argument for cardiac surgery patients, or I should say patients with cardiac disease or ischemic heart disease to be maybe different, uh, is that they uh, may have impaired uh, perfusion of their heart compared to someone who doesn't have coronary artery disease and therefore might do better with more oxygen-carrying capacity. Is that Correct. So there's two components. One is oxygen delivery to the heart might be impaired if they have coronary artery disease. But even if they don't have coronary artery disease, if they have diminished, decreased or diminished cardiac reserve, then maybe they may, they may not be able to generate sufficient oxygen delivery to the tissues. Mm-hmm. The, again, many trials have shown that transfused blood it does not maintain or re- regain its oxygen-carrying capacity for some time. So giving an allogeneic transfusion may not increase the oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood. In fact, in TRICS-2, we did measure mixed venous oxygen saturation prior to and after transfusion in a subgroup of patients, a small subgroup of patients, and the data was striking in the variability of response. Hmm. Some patients went up, some patients went down, and even those patients who had very low mixed venous oxygen saturation Some of them went up, but some of them went down as well. And there have been some recent uh, studies of cerebral oxygenation in cardiac surgery patients uh, to try and guide transfusion, done by Gavin Murphy, who was the uh, author of the Titer II trial. And that trial did not find that uh, cerebral oxygen monitoring uh, improved outcome. Transfusion based on cerebral oxygen monitoring improved outcome. Mm. So there is a sense that something else besides hemoglobin could be or should be used to base transfusion decisions. We just don't know what it is at the moment. And any of the physiologic triggers that are plausible either haven't been shown to be effective or there haven't been large enough trials to say that that physiologic trigger is the trigger we should use. Gotcha. And so some of the things you mentioned, which kind of uh, maybe, or I think pretty clearly, we know patients who have their own blood and don't need transfusions and don't get anemic, right, are they're in good shape. And so things uh, that, you know, you tell me, but I think patients can get um, preoperatively can get iron, for example. Um, they can get uh, the use of cell saver intraoperatively to try to, you know, re- get them back some of their own blood cells. Um, are there other things that you recommend or that you think are worthwhile? Yeah, well, in the cardiac surgical patients in our institution, we actually have a blood management clinic where uh, a, a blood management nurse screens all the patients and anybody who's anemic uh, gets evaluated for what the cause of their anemia is and whether this, the operation could be delayed to try and optimize their hemoglobin. And we optimize their hemoglobin with iron, either oral or IV, frequently IV, with or without erythropoietin. Mm-hmm. The, the issue of erythropoietin is still not totally settled within cardiac surgery, and there are ongoing trials looking at it, although there was a trial published in Lancet recently that suggested that uh, supplementation with iron, vitamins, and EPO significantly reduced transfusion in cardiac surgery, although it was a small study and outcome was not affected. Uh, Certainly within uh, the operating room environment, uh, things like cell saver, uh, prophylactic antifibrinolytics, uh, hemostatic um, uh, agents, um, and surgical uh, meticulousness Mm -hmm. uh, all help. And, uh, and then postoperatively, things like restrictive triggers, 
early return to operating room if there is uh, surgical bleeding um, and uh, 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 hemostatic therapy guided by point-of-care or laboratory-based interventions. Yeah, that all sounds great. I'm always struck by when we have uh, patients who are Jehovah's Witnesses and don't accept blood transfusions who have cardiac surgery. We're very we're able to be very successful in uh, getting them through that, and part of that is even little things. I think like we use smaller tubes to draw blood, so that every time they get blood drawn for tests, it's not as much getting taken. Um, plus all of the things that you mentioned, and I think you know you do have to ask the question: Why not do it for everybody? Correct, and uh, so we are. Um what's known as medical vampires in terms of the amount of blood that we take for testing. And uh, many hospitals have tried to use pediatric or reduced blood sampling to do that. Um, So, yes, we should take the same level of care that we do for Jehovah's Witnesses and expand it to the broader population. So let's talk about uh, the the actual TRIX3 trial. And obviously it was a huge trial and we're not going to go through all of it, but um, what would you say are the kind of highlight findings that, that were new or that, you know, uh, really should, should affect practice or have affected practice? So the primary goal of the study was to answer the question of whether restrictive transfusion is safe uh, compared to liberal transfusion in the setting of cardiac surgery in patients who have moderate to high risk of death. And we quite clearly answered that. Uh, the restrictive transfusion was non-inferior, that is not worse than liberal transfusion in all of the outcomes that we looked at, in all of the subgroups that we looked at, and uh, and that includes sick patients because frequently we will hear people say, yes, but my patients are different, right. yes, but my patients are sicker, but even patients who had very high euro scores, even patients who had uh, who were on two inotropes, uh, um, uh, even patients who had renal failure, um, those patients had this, there was no difference in outcome uh, compared to the overall trial group. Where there was a interaction was with age, but again, that interaction went in the way that was opposite to what we expected. That is, older patients actually did better in the restrictive transfusion group uh, compared to the younger patient group. And this was a surprise to us, but it was consistent uh, in the multiple different analyses that we did. We did it by decades of life. We did it uh, in, um, uh, with a cubic spline analysis. Every way that we did it, it was consistent in the six-month outcome and in the early outcome, that is, the older patients, uh, contrary to what most people believed, um, did better with restrictive transfusion than with liberal transfusion. Now, the New England Journal was quite careful, and we are as well, to say that this is hypothesis generating, um, but the data clearly indicates that maybe we should reexamine our beliefs that older patients, A, need a higher hemoglobin, and B, need more transfusion than others. Yeah, that was really striking when you showed those graphs this morning. And, uh, you know, again, not what we're taught. Do you have any idea, and of course we don't know for sure, but any hypotheses as to why older patients may do better with uh, less transfusion? So, again, we need to be clear that we're not saying that older patients are better to be anemic. Yep. What we're saying is that when older patients become anemic, they're not improved by liberal transfusion. Right. In fact, it may be that they're harmed by liberal transfusion. So how, 
how could that be? And again, it's all hypothesis generating. We don't know for sure, but the data does seem to be consistent. So if it is true, how does that happen? Um, and it may be that uh, older patients are susceptible to either the two-hit or the three-hit model of uh, organ injury. That is, that they may be sensitive to anemia, but when you transfuse them, uh, they may not be able to handle the volume load or they may not be able to handle the inflammatory components that are present in a unit of blood. So again, it's not that we're advocating older patients should have a low hemoglobin. Right. It's when older patients get anemic, there's no evidence to support that they should have more blood than younger patients, more transfusion than younger patients, and potentially, perhaps, they should have less. Yep, I think that's really interesting. So you had mentioned uh, this morning that the TRIX4 trial is something that we'll, we'll probably see at some point, and that is going to take a look at age. Uh, are you allowed to reveal anything about yes, that? Yes, so we recently were lucky enough to receive funding from CIHR for TRIX4. Okay, and the TRIX4, Thank you. Then the TRIX4 proposal is to study the other end of the age spectrum because just as in older patients indicated that uh, they were better off with restrictive transfusion. There was less of a signal, but some signal that potentially younger patients might have done better with liberal transfusion. So uh, because these, uh, that observation, especially in the younger patients, is hypothesis generating, we now are planning to study um, patients less than 65 having moderate to high-risk cardiac surgery with the same triggers as in TRIX3, but in younger patients to address the question of whether liberal transfusion is really superior to restrictive in that younger cohort than not. Um, and uh, or whether the converse question is whether restrictive transfusion is, uh, is uh, not better than liberal in that younger cohort. So that is the current plan. Uh, we hope to be in enrollment uh, sometime next year. And if anybody who's listening wants to participate in that trial, they're welcome to contact me uh, for more information. That sounds great. And we'll give them a, a way to get a hold of you in the show notes. So... Uh, you know, you do a huge trial like Trix3. I'm sure you've got uh, both through the New England Journal commentary and I'm sure via email and all kinds of things. I'm sure you get a lot of feedback and, and input both. Uh, you alluded to some of it before. Um, I'm sure a ton of positive and probably some uh, fairly critical. It, having read through all that, thinking about it, if you could go back, um, is there anything now in retrospect, if you, if you could, you'd change about the trial design or the way you did the Trix3 trial? I don't think I would change the design of the trial because I thought it was uh, it was quite pragmatic and uh, had broad generalizability and applicability given that it involved essentially every continent in the world. So I think the strength of it was the broad generalizability and the consistency of the results. So I mentioned that there were consistent results both in the subgroup analyses and the sensitivity analyses, but we also looked at whether region or country or healthcare system made a difference because that's always been a question of whether outcome is affected by that and whether transfusion practice is affected by that. And none of those variables uh, did we observe any difference in the signal. So the signal, the, the um, outcome seems very consistent no matter how we've analyzed it. The question of a physiologic trigger integrated into a transfusion trial, I think, is a reasonable one. Uh, I don't 
even now, after having completed tricks three, I don't know what that physiologic trigger would be, um, but I, um, uh, it's, it is something that could be considered in a future trial. And when you say physiologic trigger, we think things like heart rate or blood pressure or... Yeah, or oxygen saturation mm-hmm. or evidence of organ, specific organ ischemia. Um, the, the, that, that would lead to more of a usual care arm, and uh, some people have suggested that the more you separate groups, um, the more likely that usual care is in between those groups, and therefore why one might want to uh, have a usual care group in a trial like that. That complicates things, and from a design perspective, uh, exponentially increases the sample size, so it's not an easy thing to do. Um, so I, that's why I say I don't think I would have changed it for TRIX-3, but in future planning for transfusion trials, think people need to think about those things as well. Interesting. So why do you think there's so much resistance to a restrictive uh, strategy, especially in cardiac surgery? And, uh, you know, I think uh, some surgeons in any area are resistant to a, a restrictive strategy, but I certainly I have found, and I think a lot of us find, that cardiac surgeons especially are resistant to this. They really um, are, are known for uh, advocating for higher thresholds for their patients. Why, why is that? I think I've learned that uh, transfusion is a very emotional issue. Yeah. Uh, people seem very tied to their own beliefs about what the right approach to transfusion should be. And in interpretation or reception of the trial, a lot of that pre-existing bias continues. And there's bias both ways. And one of the challenges of doing the trial was engaging sites that had such strong bias. As I mentioned this morning, there were some sites that I went to who said, this is a great trial, we really need the answer, but I can't participate because I don't want my patients in the liberal group. And down the street was another hospital that said, this is a great trial, we really need the answer, but I can't let my patients be in the restrictive group. Right. So while there was broad general equipoise about the question, in, in some individual's mind, there was no equipoise. And so the challenge there, as I mentioned, was to get people to temporarily suspend their firmly held, uh, almost religiously held, but scientifically unsubstantiated beliefs to allow us to address a very important question. And I think those of us in the audience who may participate in future trials, again, need to remember that, that when there is equipoise uh, about a question, even if you have your own personal beliefs, it is important to temporarily suspend those firmly held beliefs to be able to answer that question properly. Absolutely. That's great advice. All right. My last question is if you uh, were taking care of a patient post-cardiac surgery in the ICU uh, and you had to pick, what would your threshold be to transfuse that patient? Would it be 7.5 or would it be lower? Uh, my threshold has been 7 to 7.5. Um, even before I uh, did the TRIX-3 trial, and uh, I'm glad that uh, the trial substantiated that that practice is a safe practice mm-hmm. to do. So you, you, you stay there. So I have, uh, yeah, my, my transfusion practice has not changed since the TRIX-3 trial, but that's, as I said, the reason we did the trial was because we wanted to be able to demonstrate that a restrictive transfusion strategy was safe for patients in having cardiac surgery. The other question that I get sometimes is that 
Um, this was a moderate to high-risk patient population. What about a lower-risk population? Yeah. And uh, our philosophy in studying higher-risk patients was if a strategy is safe in higher-risk population, then it almost certainly, we don't know for sure, but it almost certainly is safe in a lower-risk population as well. Absolutely. Um, and then you mentioned this morning that there's an ongoing trial right now looking at patients with um, active ischemia. Correct. So one of the questions has always been, if patients have ongoing cardiac ischemia, are they better off with a higher hemoglobin? And again, if they're anemic, are they better off to be transfused to a higher hemoglobin? So there is a trial that's ongoing now, a multi-center international trial called the MINT trial that is taking patients who have um, either a recent infarct, myocardial infarction, or have acute coronary syndrome and randomizing them to either restrictive or liberal transfusion. Well, one might think that's a trial that's uh, based uh, solely in the CCU or the coronary care unit. It actually is intending to study the patients that we're concerned about, the vascular surgery patient who has a peri-op MI. They would like to enroll patients in that trial, again, to answer the question that I think is still not totally uh, answered, and that is if patients periop or otherwise have an acute MI, are they better off with a restrictive or liberal transfusion uh, strategy? Uh, TRIX-3 did have patients with coronary disease, um, and uh, uh, but, but having undergone cabbage surgery, there's uh, some, uh, not concern, but there is uh, the sense that if they've had um, repaired coronary disease, then maybe they're different than the patients who have ongoing or acute coronary ischemia. Again, in the subgroup analysis of our study in patients who had cabbage surgery, whether or not they had complete revascularization, there was no difference. That is, uh, the signal was consistent, and there was no evidence that a restrictive transfusion was harmful in that group of patients. But the MINT study, which will probably take another couple of years, I would think, is specifically trying to address that question of acute coronary ischemia, both in CCU patients, and hopefully there'll be enough patients that will inform our perioperative practice as well. Great. Well, that'll be really interesting to see, as well as the TRIX-4 trial when uh, when that data is available as well. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is the part of the show where we make random recommendations on anything and, and everything that you may um, want to uh, mention to people, something you may have. Uh, you'll be at a cocktail party this weekend, and you'll say, hey, everybody, uh, you should check out X, Y, or Z. So I'll ask you to make a rec- uh, random recommendation to our audience. So what do you have for us? My recommendation is that mentorship will be really important was very important for me uh, in my career, both personal mentorship and professional mentorship, and I still consult my mentors uh, now for advice. And the second piece of advice that I have is to consider your own best interest when making decisions both personally and professionally. That doesn't mean you have to decide what is, make a selfish decision, but make sure that a decision that you make incorporates a consideration of what uh, is in your best interests as well. 
I think that's great advice and a great recommendation to make. Um, I'm going to go with uh, one thing I've already mentioned, but I just want to remind people of, uh, again, a little self-serving for the podcast here, but remember to check out uh, at the American Society of Anesthesiologists meeting. We will be doing interviews with Dr. Jeffrey Cooper on the communication and relationship between anesthesiologists and surgeons, which should be really interesting. He's giving a talk on that. And then with Dr. Wiener Cronish, who's the chair at MGH, talking about personalized PEEP. And she's giving the John Severinghouse lecture on that topic. So both will be interesting. And I'm going to, again, a little log rolling, but recommend those when they come out. And then my other random recommendation for folks out there, if you've never tried an instant pot for cooking, we have really gotten into this in my household. It's like a pressure cooker, slow cooker combined, and you can really make some delicious stuff really fast. So if you're pressed for time and you want some delicious food, you can make it home. Check out the instant pot. I would agree with that. Awesome. All right. Uh, Dr. Mazur, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, thanks. Pleasure being here. All right. That was really fantastic. I learned a ton. I hope you did, too. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, and let us know what you thought. If you have questions, you can leave them there. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. You can follow us at ACRAC Podcast, and I'm at Jay Wolpaw. That's J-W-O-L-P-A-W. You can also join the Facebook group. It's the ACRAC Facebook group where you can join the conversation and let us know what you think about this and all of the episodes. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Also, you can make a donation anytime at paypal.me slash ACRAC. Huge thank you to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. A big thank you, as always, to Brian Park for the outlines he does for the shows. Our amazing intern is Kimia Cash Cooley. Thanks for all you are doing for the show. And, of course, our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. David Mazur, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.